Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you very much, John, for leading us in prayer. Parents, uh, time to dismiss your children for Children's Church, if you would like to do that. So kids, head back toward the center doors as usual. And uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 28 to 34 this morning. Um, John just prayed for our Christianity Explored class. Let me just kind of give another, another pitch for the, the CE class that is starting soon, not this Thursday, but next Thursday. And so, again, this is uh, kind of an evangelistic class. It's designed particularly for people who um, are uh, unbelievers outside the church, but it's also good for people who uh, are new to the faith or maybe people who are just a little confused about the basics of the gospel. Maybe you feel a little lost sometimes. You're not really sure what some of these things mean that we talk about, and so that would be a really good opportunity for you, Christianity Explored. So, best thing about it, maybe, well, no, the best thing is you get to hear the gospel, but secondly, you get to enjoy some of my wife's desserts. So, um, we serve dessert, we hang out, we watch a short video, and we talk uh, about the gospel. So, um, that's next Thursday again. It's at our home, 6.30 to 8.30. Anybody's welcome. Just love for you to sign up. And also, again, think about people who you know who might be interested in this kind of thing. Let me just encourage you to consider inviting them to come. And we've got these little invitation cards at the Welcome Center. You can just pick one of those up and write down on that whatever you want. Uh, but relevant information, again, July 20, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Um, you can hand it to your friends, family, working associates, etc. cetera. Uh, there's plenty of room. Got a number signed up already, encouraged by that, but there's, there's room for more. So again, that starts next Thursday night at 6.30. Mark chapter 12, if you don't have a, a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to pick that up, take a look at it. And let me begin <clears throat> this morning by asking this question. What is the very greatest thing in your life that you can do? What, what is the greatest, most important thing, the most valuable, virtuous, wonderful thing that you could do, that anybody could do. Cure cancer, that's always kind of the cliched thing that people think of as the, the chief good work that someone could do, cure cancer. Maybe rescue someone from a burning building, maybe, or a child from drowning in a lake, diving in, risking your life, rescuing somebody, certainly a very good thing. Um, maybe for you, it's just giving birth, raising a successful, reputable family. That certainly would constitute a very good thing. Henry Ford, the great car maker, said the greatest thing in life is to keep his mind young. Christina Aguilera said the greatest thing that she could do is interact with her fans and touch people's lives. Oprah Winfrey said the single greatest thing to do is to start being grateful for all that you have. These are all really good things, for sure, good things. But are these the greatest thing? Is any of these things that I mentioned the greatest thing that you could do? And what would Jesus say to this question? How would Jesus answer this question of what is the greatest thing that a person could do? Whatever it is that Jesus says, I think we ought to probably pay attention to that 
and perhaps make that our chief primary goal in life to pursue what it is that Jesus says is the greatest thing to do. That's what we're going to look at here this morning as we consider Jesus and the great command. We're just going through the book of Mark. We're just working through it one passage at a time. Here we are, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, and Jesus gets asked in this passage the very question that I just asked to you, and He gives the answer, and so we're going to give attention to that now. So if you are able to stand, please do that with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, paperback Bibles. I think this is on page 495, I think. I didn't check before the sermon, but I think that's where it is, 495, 496, Mark 12, 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one and there is no other beside Him, and to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Him any more questions. Holy Spirit, would you come please open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. All right, well you've heard the answer or the question posed to Jesus here pretty, pretty clearly. What is the greatest command? So from this I want to show you three things from this passage this morning. First is this, It is of essential importance to love the one true God. It is of essential importance to love the one true God. So here's what happens. Verse 28, we have one of the scribes comes up to Jesus. The scribe, you might recall, uh, would be uh, like a religious scholar, uh, an expert in God's law. This would be someone that everybody looked up to as very knowledgeable in spiritual and biblical matters. And this scribe comes up to Jesus, and he comes with a bit of a less hostile approach than some of the other scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees from the past few weeks. You might remember Jesus has engaged in two other encounters, one where somebody comes and challenges Jesus on whether it was appropriate to give taxes to Caesar. And uh, the next time somebody came and was a group, then they were questioning Jesus on whether there was marriage and the resurrection. But in both of those cases, you might recall that it was indicated that those questions were designed to trap Jesus, that there was this hostile intent here. But it's not really the case here. This guy comes with a much more friendly demeanor. It says in verse 28 that um, he had been listening in on these previous conversations and disputes, and Um, saw that Jesus answered them well. So this guy is kind of impressed with Jesus. So 
He doesn't seem to be coming with any hostile intent, and so he asks this question, which I think we can assume is very sincere. And he asks in verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? What's the greatest thing you could do, in other words? Now, when we think of commandments, we think of ten. Of course, we know about the ten commandments. Uh, In Jewish rabbinic tradition, however, they really like to add commands to the commands in the Bible. In fact, they had an additional 613 commands. So when this guy asks this question, there's a lot for Jesus to choose from. I think it's broader than just the ten commandments. But Jesus, nonetheless, gives a very simple answer to the question in verse 29. He begins by saying this. Jesus answered, it says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what Jesus is doing here is quoting a passage from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. It's called the Shema. Shema is just a Hebrew word for hear. It's why it says here, hear, O Israel. This was uh, a, a very important creedal statement for the typical Jew of this time. This would have been recited by the devoted Jewish person morning and night every day. Some Jews wore these things called phylacteries. They were like little uh, cubes, leather cubes, and they would wear them up on their forehead. Inside those little cubes would be little parchments, and on those parchments would be written this verse. That's how central of importance this verse, the Shema, was to the typical Jew. Now, one thing I want you to notice here before we go any further is that the, 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 uh, <clears throat> the question is, what is the greatest command? But Jesus' answer to begin with, notice, is a theological statement. He doesn't begin by telling the man something to do. He begins by saying, here is something to believe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Many people in the surrounding nations of Israel of that day would have been polytheistic. They would have believed in a number of different gods. And so what Jesus is saying is before you really understand what to do, you've got to understand what to believe. And he makes this theological statement. God is one. There's one true God, and therefore all other so-called deities who would claim to be gods are false gods. That would have been somewhat of a controversial thing to say then, just as it is a controversial thing to say today. But I think that's noteworthy. The question is, what should I do? Jesus starts with theology. God is one, a monotheistic statement. But then he goes on, and he says in verse 30, repeating again the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that is with your affections, with your emotions, with all your soul, that that is in your spirit, that is in the very essence of who you are as a person, with all your mind, with, with your thoughts, with your intellect, and with all your strength, with all of your, your will and your determination. And notice how that word all is repeated four times. We're talking about the totality of the person. In every aspect of our being, we should bring that in devotion to God. Now, one thing to notice here, I didn't put Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5 on the screen. Maybe I should have, but one of the things that is missing in the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 is the mention of the mind. 
In the Shema, it says, love the Lord God with your heart and your soul and your, your might, I think it says. But it doesn't say mind. So Jesus adds to this commandment to love the Lord God with your mind. So we could park in any of these various elements, but because this is kind of set apart a little bit, it's worth thinking about. Very often, it is assumed that loving God is just a matter of the heart. It's just a matter of emotions. It's just a matter of feelings, and certainly that is part of it. We should love God with our heart, as Jesus says here. But let us not forget that we are also called to love God with our mind. It's more than a feeling, friends. You are to use your intellect to understand the revelation of God's truth in His Scriptures. You are to be a reader of the Bible, a studier of the Bible, a thinker about divine revelation. We are to be thoughtful about our faith. It is more than just a matter of the heart. As Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just in the church, over the years, there has been this kind of anti-intellectualism as if the Christian faith is about nothing more than having Jesus living in my heart. (laughs) But it's more than that, friends. We are to be thinkers, we are to be readers, we are to be theologians. Every Christian is a theologian. The question is whether you're a good one or whether you're a bad one. So love the Lord God with your mind. But again, just notice the totality. That word all is just repeated so frequently here. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is a a requirement of total commitment on behalf of the believer. It's our entire whole person we are to bring in devotion to God. And this is uh, one of the most challenging verses in all of the Scriptures, because if there's anybody who would think, and and maybe some of you kind of carry with you this kind of assumption sometimes, where you just kind of think, you know, I mean, I'm really a pretty good person, quite frankly. I I mean, I, I, you know, I don't really need any help. Uh, I do the best I can. I live an upright life. I I am a decent, moral, good person. Anybody who thinks that needs to take some time and reflect on this particular verse. Because yes, it's true. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody, and maybe you haven't raped anybody, and maybe you haven't burglarized anybody's home, and maybe you're not a racist. But I'll tell you something else you haven't done. You have not loved the Lord God with your your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody has. Nobody has. I'm a pastor, and I don't do that throughout the course of even one day. Before my feet even hit the floor, when I get out of bed, I have fallen short of this command to love the Lord God with every ounce of my being. What this passage highlights is the need of every single individual for a Savior. Friends, there is just nothing you can do to meet this standard. The good news, though, in the gospel is that there is one who has loved the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's Jesus Christ, the only one who's done that, and he is the one who has come to save us from our failures in this regard. Ken Hughes says this, nothing is of greater importance than loving God. If we fail to take this seriously, we may find at the end of our lives that all of our works counted for nothing. 
because they weren't done out of love for God. It is of essential importance, according to Jesus here, to love the one true God. Second thing to consider is this. It is of secondary importance to love your neighbor. Okay, so um, when I say secondary here, I, I don't mean that in the sense of minimizing the importance of loving one's neighbor. I'm just making the point that loving neighbor flows from the first point. Love of neighbor flows from love of God. Love of God comes first, love of neighbor comes second, and it's our love for God that gives us our love for our neighbor. C.S. Lewis, I think, was very helpful in describing it this way. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I think he just means his, his, his wife or the person on earth that he loves the most, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. First things first is loving God. And by loving God first, then we are able to love our neighbor better. That's why it's in this order. That's why I say it is of secondary importance to love your neighbor. But look at verse 31. So what Jesus says, the second is this, secondarily. Second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. And then he says it again. There is no other commandment greater than these. Here are the greatest things you can do. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, now, notice the implication of this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. That's just very, I think, intentionally put. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is, don't love your neighbor as God. So There's a limit there to how much we should love our neighbor. We, we don't love our neighbor in the same way that we love God. We don't make an idol out of our neighbor. We don't love our neighbors as some divine figures. We, we love our neighbor as ourself not less than ourself, that is not with any kind of carelessness or, or apathy. So this short little phrase puts a limit on how much we love our neighbor, but also puts a bottom on how least we should love our neighbor. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Fact is, friends, we are pretty proactive and deliberate and intentional about caring for ourselves, aren't we? Most people are. We're proactive about caring for ourselves, and that's the standard that's set up here. We should be similarly intentional in loving our neighbor, not apathetic, not passive. Sometimes you'll hear people saying things, well, I just like to live and let live. I just live and let live. And that has a certain kind of good sound about it, except that is just such a feeble, weak way of treating neighbors. Live and let live. What that really implies is you just live your life, I'm going to live my life, and let's not bother with each other. That's not Christian love. Christian love is active, it's proactive, it's intentional, it's deliberate. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that brings up another question, which is, maybe you're asking this even at this moment, is it really true that we ought to love ourselves? Are you called to love yourself? And that sounds maybe counterintuitive to what we hear very often from Christian pulpits because we know about the problem of sin. And we know that sin leads us to love ourselves too much. That's probably our biggest problem is that we're obsessed with ourselves. 
we love ourselves too much. But the problem with that is that sometimes in Christian circles, we swing too far and we think, well, to avoid loving myself, I guess I'm supposed to hate myself. And that would be a completely unbiblical, unwarranted conclusion to draw. Jesus is saying here, love your neighbor as yourself. Certainly the implication is that to some degree we should love ourselves. Does that sound strange coming from a Christian pastor? You, you should love yourself. I mean, you hear it in the prosperity preachers sometimes. And certainly this teaching has been abused, but I think we have to notice what Jesus is saying here as well as what the Scriptures say in other places, like in Proverbs 19. Whoever gets sense or understanding loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. The implication is you, you ought to get understanding because it's good for you, and, and you love yourself when you grow in understanding. Ephesians 5, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The implication is that loving yourself is kind of a standard by which you love your wife. Love your wife, that's good. Love yourself, that's good too, is the implication. You know, the foundation for any love that we have for our neighbor is the fact that our neighbor is made in the image of God, right? But guess what? You're made in the image of God too. So to hate yourself is to hate God's image in yourself, and that would not be warranted. St. Augustine says this, it is impossible that one should love God and not love himself. In fact, he alone has a proper love of himself who loves God. Because we always know when we love God first that our love for self will be in proper order. So, yes, a very qualified yes. Should you love yourself? Yes. Uh, but with love of God first and uh, with a regular fight against the pride and selfishness that can so easily come from that. So here's another question that we might ask as we look at this command to love our neighbor, and that is, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who qualifies as your neighbor? You might remember that Jesus actually got this very same question in the book of Luke. Chapter 10, there was a lawyer that came to him and asked him some questions, and actually Jesus' answer was the very same as what he gives here in Mark 12. Jesus said to him, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer responds and says, yeah, but Jesus, who's my neighbor? And do you remember what he says after that? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And so Jesus tells this story. He says, okay, there's this man, and he's coming down this road, and, and he gets robbed and beaten up, and he gets left on the road. And a priest comes by and just walks right by him. And then a Levite comes by, and he just walks right by him. Here are the religious leaders in the Jewish community, and they don't pay any attention to this guy. But then a Samaritan comes along, a Samaritan, one who would have been hated by the average Jewish person. The Samaritan comes along, and he has compassion on this man who's been beaten up and left on the side of the road. And, and he takes care of him, and he, to great expense of his own personal giving, takes care of this person on the side of the road, and then Jesus at the end says, go and do likewise. In other words, what point Jesus is making here is this. Your, your neighbor is not just your best friend. Your neighbor, neighbor is not, not just the people in your own household. Your neighbor is not just the people who go to your church. Your neighbor is um, not the person who just lives next door to you. 
Your neighbor is anybody who comes across your path in your day-to-day life who finds himself in a position of need. That's your neighbor. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. It doesn't matter if you like him or love him or agree with him or know him or her. A person of need in your path is your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love these people. Mary and I had a uh, an opportunity to do this. This was a couple years ago. Actually, we were driving down um, Jackson Street there near Northwest Bank, Jackson and Tillotson area, and we drove and, and noticed that there was this woman who was lying down on the sidewalk and seemed to be kind of struggling to get up. And quite frankly, our first instinct was just to drive right on by, and, and we did. And we drove by, we got down the road, and then just kind of thought, maybe we got to go back and see what's going on there. So we turned around, <clears throat> went back, pulled up, and, and asked this woman if she was okay. And uh, she said, you know, was clearly distressed, said she kind of met with a little divot in the sidewalk. She, she fell down and had trouble getting back up, was on the verge of tears. And so we just said, can we give you a lift? Can we take you back home to your house? And, and she said yes, and she got into our car. Now, I'm not commenting on the wisdom of getting into a a car with strangers. <laughs> Not sure if I would have done that, but she did. She got in our car, and we took her back to her house. Turns out she was from out of town. She was visiting family. She wasn't even really sure how to get back to her house, but we were able to, to take her back home. Not a big deal. I'm not telling you this to present ourselves as these good Samaritans, because I'll tell you there have been plenty of opportunities when we've had a chance to do this kind of thing, and we haven't. But I tell you that story to highlight this point, that woman, that lady, in that moment, was our neighbor and should be loved. And so we can think about all sorts of opportunities that fall across our paths and how we can love those that God puts in our paths. Very often it's very easy to look at it as a distraction, as something we don't want to get involved in. We just want to live and let live. But what Jesus says love your neighbor. Here's the principle. I think we can state it like this. Love for God finds its chief expression in love for others, and love for others is the chief evidence of love for God. That sums up these first two points. Love for others finds its chief expression in love for others. Love for others is the chief evidence of love for God. The person who is holed up all by himself, maybe reading his Bible and praying and feels like he has such a close relationship with God but has no connection with other people, is in disobedience to what Jesus is saying. But at the same time, the person who's out doing every good deed in the community, helping the poor and helping the homeless, but has no regard for God, has no love of God in his house, is similarly in disobedience to this passage. It's a combination of these two things. We, we extend, as Christians, we extend this love to our neighbors, whether they're friend or foe, whether they are atheist or Muslim, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual, whether they are conservative or liberal, whether we know them or we don't, whether they're man or woman, whether they're black or white, love your neighbor. But the third thing, let me share with this also, 1 John, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 
So one other thing to consider this morning is this. I've made the point, it is of essential importance to love the one true God. It is of secondary importance then to love our neighbor. But it is of the highest importance to love God through Jesus. That's the most important consideration. So let's go back to the text, return to our scribe. Uh, Verse 32, after hearing Jesus answer, the scribe says to to, uh, Jesus, you're right, teacher, you're right. Again, you know, he seems like he's, he's a friend. And he just, he repeats what Jesus says. You're right. No other God besides Him. Love Him with all your heart, understanding, strength, neighbor as oneself. It's much more than all whole burnt offerings or sacrifices. And then Jesus responds in kind. Jesus saw that He acted wisely. He says, yeah, this, this guy, this is a, a good answer. This is not a typical Pharisee here, apparently, this scribe. He's showing great insight into spiritual things. He understands that knowing God is not a matter of just going through the motions and just checking off the boxes, as some could do even with offerings and sacrifices. You can bring all sorts of expensive offerings to the temple and your heart is far from God. This scribe understands that that's not what God desires. Relationship with God is a matter of the the heart And so he is on to something, and Jesus recognizes it, and he says, you have answered well. But look what he says next in verse 34. Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're not far. You're you're outside. In other words, you're not quite there. You're still outside the kingdom, scribe. I mean, you're kind of like the wide receiver who's caught the ball and is traveling down the football field and gets tackled at the one-yard line. Close, but not in the end zone. This scribe is close to the kingdom, but he's still outside the kingdom. He doesn't have a relationship with God. There's one significant thing missing in this scribe's life. He has no relationship with Jesus. He doesn't know the Savior. And that's why Jesus says, you're not far. You're almost there, but you're outside. I'm telling you, if you land on the one-yard line or if you land at the 50-yard line, if you're not in the end zone, you don't get the points. And he is outside the kingdom. He hasn't placed faith in the Savior. Maybe Maybe this is you today. You've been religious all your life. You've been an upright, good person all your life. You're spiritual. You understand things. You have great insight. You love people. You help people. You do everything you can to be a good person, to try to do the greatest thing you can possibly do, but you don't know Jesus. And if that's you, you're not far, but you're not there either. So what do you do? What do you do? I'm going to go and I'm going to love God more now. I'm going to love my neighbor more. Is that that the first thing you should do if this is you? If you're not far from the kingdom, still outside? No, here's what you should do. As good as it is to love God and to love your neighbor, the most important thing for you to do is to repent of your self-reliance, to turn away from your hope in yourself, and to trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you, to put your faith in Him, to turn from all self-reliance, to wave the white flag of surrender and say, I'm tired of trying to do it myself. Jesus, thank you for doing it for me. And you believe on his name, and you get saved. That's the greatest thing that you can do. 
greatest thing. There's a guy named John Wesley, maybe some of you have heard. He's kind of the father of Methodism, the Methodist church from way back in the 18th century. John Wesley, uh, very uh, famous evangelist and uh, theologian. And his story is so interesting because for like the first 35 years of his life, he was very devoted religious person. He prayed one hour every day. He fasted twice every week. He visited people in prison. He helped poor people on a regular basis. And he was not a Christian. And it was May 24th, 1738. He opened up his Bible and his eyes fell on this verse, Mark 12, 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. His eyes fell on that verse, and he thought to himself, that's me. He said, I, I have been, he would even go on mission trips. He went on mission trips to try to convert the Indians, and then he would reflect on it and say, there I am trying to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? He, he wasn't a believer. He didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And so it was that night, May 24, 1738, after his eyes fell on this verse and he realized that he was still outside the kingdom, that, that he went home and he received Jesus, gave his life to Christ, received his life, death, and resurrection on his behalf, and became a Christian and went from not far from the kingdom to entering the kingdom. And that can be true of you as well. It's really rather simple turning from yourself and resting on Jesus. Here's what Wesley said as he reviewed that experience that evening. He said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. Can this be said of you? Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for reminding us, O oh God, that the requirements of Your law, as good and right and holy as they are, are beyond our reach. But Jesus, thank You. You did what we couldn't do. You loved the Father when we didn't. You obeyed the Father when we didn't. And You gave Yourself in a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. We thank You. We praise You, Lord. And knowing the gospel now, God in heaven, help us to love You more and to love our neighbor as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.